If you would please turn to the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles. I will be reading Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Acts 8, 26 through 40. And now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, historical word to our hearts and minds. Holy Father, help me this morning teach. Work in us. Work in us by your Holy Spirit in our minds, in our hearts, in our desires. Continue to draw us to you over your word. Oh, to the desperately needed comfort and satisfaction of our souls and to the glory of your name. Amen. The scripture has been spoken. It is God 
breathed once and for all. The Hebrew Old Testament Scripture, the New Testament apostolic witness and unfolding and teaching of the Gospel. As the book of Jude says, the faith, meaning the content of the Gospel, of Christianity, has once and for all been delivered to the saints. It's here. It's in the book. It's been here since, in its totality now, since the end of the first century. And there is no other revelation to come in order to teach us or enlighten us on what we need to know in order to be saved, in order to be sanctified, in order to walk with God as His people. The Scripture is the final authority of all truth. It is absolutely sufficient in order to be saved in order to be sanctified, in order to flourish in the Christian life. It gives us all we need to know in order to judge between good and evil. True doctrine and false doctrine. Right versus wrong. And if anyone comes and declares something that is contrary to what has already been written, they are wrong and they are not to be listened to, but shunned until they would repent. Now, here's Philip. Philip also had the Scripture. And he had the content of the Gospel he did not need for God to supernaturally reveal to him what the gospel was. He already received it from the apostles, like we have. He had the goods, like we have the goods. Having said that, what we see in this passage is that God personally spoke to Philip. First, by sending him an angel and to tell him what to do. Then, God the Holy Spirit Himself spoke to this Christian, Philip. Verse 29, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join the chariot. So my question for us this morning is this. Does God speak to His people today? Does He speak? Does He lead? 
Does he guide his people today? Or was that just something he did for the 2,000 years from Abraham to the early Christians up until the end of the first century? Like Philip. Or like all those normal men and women, young and old Christians in Corinth, who evidently were having the Holy Spirit put stuff in their heart that they were to speak or to do in order to bless other people? Did it end with examples like the Philip one or later in Acts like chapter 20, verse 22 to 23 when we read this? Here's the Apostle Paul speaking. Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. He did not mean every time I get to a new city, the Holy Spirit speaks to me, Paul, in my heart. He meant the Holy Spirit speaks to me through other Christians, telling me this is what in the future is going to happen to you. Or in chapter 21, on that journey, Paul arrives to the city of Tyre. And Luke tells us this. And having sought out the disciples in that town, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they, the disciples, were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Okay. Did that just end? The end of the first century. Are we who ardently believe in the unique authoritative, inerrant, infallible, and all-sufficient written Word of God, are we also to think that the Holy Spirit has removed Himself from speaking like that? From speaking like, go talk. To your neighbor, Mr. Smith. Go pray for that, sister. Give $400 to that family. Say these precise words to that brother or my child. You have bitterness growing within you. Cast it upon me. Trust Romans 12, 19 into my hands. You can do it. And then go and reconcile with that person. The question is, does he still do that? Now, 
We're going to go to our text, and as we work through our text, I want you to keep that question in the back of your minds, and I'll come back to it at the end. So here we are in this passage. Here's Philip. Philip is not an apostle. He's a Christian with an extraordinary gift of evangelism. And he's in one of the cities of Samaria, and Philip has no cognizance, no idea that this Ethiopian man even exists. But God does. And God will personally guide Philip in order to save that man. Verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And Luke tells us this, this is a desert, middle of nowhere place. So here's Philip. He had just preached in this city of Samaria and the Holy Spirit fell powerfully. Many, many people were saved and there was much joy in that city. So now we don't know if he's been there a week or three weeks or a month. And then all of a sudden, one day, God sends an angel to tell Philip to leave the city, to go south about 50 miles. It's going to take him a couple days at least to get there to some barren desert road. And that's all God told him through the angel. That's it. He didn't know why. He didn't tell him why. Just do it. And Philip obeyed. Verse 27, and he rose and went. And he arrived. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace. Candace is not her name. It's like Pharaoh or Caesar. It's like the Pharaoh, right? The king of the Egyptians. Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man was in charge of all her treasury. So here's Ethiopia. It's in Africa. It's south of Egypt, down the Nile. It's about 500 miles south of Jerusalem. This is a black African he was an elite in the government. He's like the treasury secretary. Okay. And God is sovereign. And He's not only sovereign. He's not the God of deism. He is very active in this creation and in this world. And here we see God takes the initiative to get the gospel to one particular man. Philip, get up and go to this obscure road between Jerusalem and Gaza. Now, he, you got to listen carefully. He did not say that to Philip in the written word. You're thinking, what are you talking about? This is about, yes, it's there now. 
That's not for, for you. We, we're, we see God work there. That's not like thou shalt not murder for us. That's what God wanted recorded. And he did and all over the scripture. You get examples of this for our good. It wasn't something he could possibly find in the scripture. Go to such and such a, an address in such and such a city on that particular street. Okay. It's not something that Philip would have found in the Scripture. So God sends an angel to tell him, to guide him what to do. Because God was orchestrating that Philip, a couple days later, will cross the path of this Ethiopian man on that road. And it happened. That he would cross the path exactly when the man in his chariot was reading out loud Isaiah chapter 50. Three. That's God. And you could not select a better passage from the Old Testament as an opening to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's this Ethiopian man. He clearly had some knowledge of Judaism, of the God of the Jews that had gotten to him. Who knows how long he wanted to make this very long journey back then. 500 miles is a very long way to go. He finally does. He wants to see the city of Jerusalem. He wants to see the temple. And so he went. And verse 27 tells us clearly that he had come all the way to Jerusalem for the purpose of to worship. He believed in this one God. And he must have that, while he's there, bought what's very expensive to buy, a scroll. Whether he just had the scroll of Isaiah or a number of the prophets or all of the Hebrew scriptures, we don't know. He's a wealthy man, but he bought a Septuagint version, and we know he has at least Isaiah. Septuagint version is the Greek translation. And so now he's on his journey back. He's only 20 to 30 miles outside Jerusalem at this point. He's in the back of the chariot. He has a, an entourage with him. He's got servants all over. He's got someone driving the chariot. He's got plenty of time to read. And it is the custom that when people read, they read out loud in this time. And if you never have done it, you might try it. So he's reading out loud as they're rolling down this desert road. And God's timing is perfect. Philip, go where I tell you. He obeys. He gets there. Over there is a chariot, a black man from Ethiopia riding in it. And then God speaks again. Gives him step two to Philip. Start with verse, the end of verse 27. So this man had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning back home, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit 
said to Philip, go over and join the chariot. The Lord's supernatural guidance came one step at a time. First the angel, then that, now go over to the chariot. But that's all he gets. It doesn't tell him why to go over to the chariot. But the timing of the Lord was perfect because as Philip drew closer, he starts to hear the man reading. He gets closer and he realizes he's reading Isaiah 53. The prophecy of my Savior, Jesus, 700 years ago, written. I can't believe this. I don't know if you need to speak anymore, Lord. I'm getting what's happening now. Let's just read it and start with verse 30. And so Philip ran to him in obedience to the Spirit speaking and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked, Do you understand what you were reading? And he said, How can I? No, unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. In the chariot. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was Isaiah 53 verses 7 to 8. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. So now it all comes together for Philip. He sees the beauty of the Lord's orchestrating this. God, you're going to have mercy on this man as you bring me to bring him the gospel. And so he begins to preach, to teach, to answer his questions. Who knows how long they went on? Because he only began with Isaiah 53. And then he went all over the place, just like the Lord Jesus would do. One clear lesson in this passage is this. God uses human beings to preach the gospel to other human beings. He did not send the angel to the Ethiopian eunuch to preach the gospel. He sent the angel to one of his children, Philip, to command him to do what he says that would result in Philip preaching the gospel to this man. Philip obeyed the angel, and then he obeyed the Holy Spirit's instructions to him. And now he gets it when he hears the man reading Isaiah 53. He knows exactly what to do from there. Sir, do you understand what you're reading? And the man answered, how can I unless someone guides me? And so, Philip, come on up. Help me. 
In verse 34, and the eunuch said to Philip, Who's this about? This person who suffers so much here that I'm reading about, who is this referring to? And then Philip opened his mouth. Starting with that scripture, he told them who it referred to. He told them the good news about Jesus. This man is primed. This is not a resistant person that you would run into at the evangelism table sometimes. This man has been having God, who knows how long, work on his soul. He is hungry. He's hungry for answers about ultimate reality and ultimate truth. And Philip's here chomping at the bit. This guy just asked me, who in the world is this Isaiah 53 person? He's thinking it doesn't get any better than this. And so he starts to answer him. I'm just going to go for maybe two minutes. It's going to be four then when I say that. But I, I think what he does, look at this. Okay, give me that scroll. Let's look back. I, right before, I heard you start reading here in verse 7, but let's go back a few verses, Mr. Ethiopian eunuch, to, to, to verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. This is referring to a man named Jesus from Nazareth. You probably heard about him while you were in Jerusalem. He did not look like a king at all. There was no majesty. But he is king. He's the one that the prophets over and over had predicted would come to sit on his father, King David's throne who lived you heard of King David? Oh yes, okay. So he lived a, a thousand years ago. This is the promised king, but he did not look like one. There is no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. You see, a little bit over a year ago, the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, couldn't stand him and the things he was saying anymore. And... They brought him before the Roman government. Then they had him brutally tortured to death. They totally rejected him. That's why it says here about him, 700 years ago it said this, a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, it was so horrific what happened to him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. But sir, this is the good news. Verse 4, surely, surely he has borne upon himself our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced in the side for our transgressions. You see, on that cross, 
a Roman soldier took his spear to make sure that Jesus was dead and shoved it right into his side, piercing him. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Jesus was the chastisement, the punishment that brought to me, and it could be yours, Mr. Ethiopian eunuch, peace. And with his wounds we are healed. You see, here's the problem, sir. You and I, created by the one and only holy God, you know it. That's why you're asking me questions, and I certainly know it. We are sinners, and we are guilty. As the prophet said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord, the God of the Jews, the God of creation, Yahweh, has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He willingly went there like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearer is silent, so He opened not His mouth mouth. He purposefully came to die. This man who is not just a man, but God's own eternal Son who became a human being in order to do this. And the prophet says, He was cut off out of the land of the living. Killed. But you see, he was stricken for the transgressions of my people. And it doesn't end there. You just jump down into Isaiah, a couple more verses, to verse 10. And he says, After the suffering servant's death, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus, He has put Him to grief. And then these stunning words. When His soul makes an offering for guilt. You are in the temple. You know these things about the sacrificial system. It all pointed to this Messiah, the Son of David who is the only sacrifice to take away sin. And he was killed. But then it says, after he's killed, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in His hands. And that's exactly what happened a little over a year ago. After three days dead and in the tomb, God raised Jesus from the dead. And not only that, for a month and a half, Jesus in glorified humanity sat and ate with His disciples. Not just a few, but into the hundreds and would teach them and teach them and they touched Him before He ascended on high and has sent me to you to tell you this great 
news. And so, do you see? This is who Isaiah is referring to. And it means Mr. Ethiopian. That forgiveness of sins is absolutely available to you or to anybody freely if you will just receive Him as your Savior and as your Lord and as God Almighty. There's water! Obviously, Philip went on and on and told him about baptism. And he goes down and he baptizes him. And then Philip, they part ways. And this man has the gospel. He's got scripture in hand. And he will tell people down in Africa, down in Ethiopia, God purposed it that way. Now back to the question I opened with. Does God still speak and lead and guide His people today like that in order to serve others, in order to evangelize, in order to minister to one another within the body of Christ comfort and help? Or was that something that he just did for a couple thousand years and it all stopped in the year 100 A.D. or so? What we do have here and throughout the book of Acts is Luke gives us details. He gives us details of how God led this way with Philip. So here's my answer. Biblically, there is no reason to think that the Holy Spirit is now silent in personally guiding His people to serve like Philip. What we as God's people need, what Philip needed, this is so central to Christianity, is to constantly saturate ourselves with the Scripture. And with it, we should yearn for the Lord to tenderize our hearts. Bob calls this thing a knower, like he did again this morning. To tenderize, not, not just the knower, but that, that part of us that has the ability to one extent or another to really know, to feel, be sensitive to who God is and how He's working in us so that we would be open to that still, small voice of the Holy Spirit who might tell us to do something or to say something. In other words, to do or to say something that just wisdom will never lead us to do or say. We are to constantly grow in wisdom. We have a book of wisdom called Proverbs. You grow in life by walking with the Lord. and you, you, Wise, but wisdom doesn't lead you to say, you know what, get up 
and go to some deserted dirt road between Jerusalem and Gaza. It doesn't lead you to do that. But the Holy Spirit might lead you to do that. Now, the Apostle Paul, he wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, very important words. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The Word of God written corrects us, leads us into all the truth we need, fills us, molds us to become wiser, and gives us principles on how to get along in life. Does. And that very same scripture models for us again and again and again that God may also lead us by means not just of normal growth, word, saturation in us, but may also lead us by extraordinary guidance. Just read missionary biographies written over the last 200 years. Uh, even people who are missionaries that were cessationist will just, stories will just come out how God orchestrated. How they were impressed to do something that they would have never thought to do and the results are amazing. We should be focused on wanting to commune with God in an intimate way. And in that, be open, if He gives it, to guidance, to leadings, to words that we're, am I supposed to say that to that person? Paul warns in 1 Thessalonians 5 to the church in Thessalonica or to us today. Rejoice always. But I'm going through a hard time. Yeah, I know. And there's a way to rejoice while crying, according to Paul. Because of the salvation we have. Rejoice always. Pray without stopping. Give thanks in all circumstances. Because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And do not quench the Spirit. Don't throw a bucket of cold water on the moving, the person and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast to what's good and throw away what's evil. 
bad. We should, therefore, daily in our prayer lives, in our walk with the Lord, we should be urgent to delve into deeper and deeper fellowship with our great Trinitarian God. To have Him, because if you're like me, you need this constantly. To have Him soften our sinful, hard hearts. And to soften them, to cause us to be more sensitized to hear. His leadings. Now, I'm going to put something out there. I think you, you do with it what you will. But I think often we resist the Holy Spirit. I said often, not always. There is a condemner out there. But we often resist the Holy Spirit by resisting our own consciences. Often, not always, often our guilty or condemning conscience is the Holy Spirit's speaking, guiding us to repent. Now, I know that in our day, when anybody, like I'm doing now, you advocate God's very present, personal, speaking voice, guidance, go to this town, to that street, do this, go to Mary Jane and say these words, or when you advocate the Holy Spirit's gifts, laid out in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. If you advocate personal spiritual edification by those who have this gift of speaking in an unknown tongue or praying in an unknown tongue or to, to, to yearn to be able to be used with prophecy to encourage and to build up, that there are many voices that say, no, 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 no. You don't need that. We have the Scripture. It is sufficient. That's why God stopped working like He did with Philip and so many others at the end of the first century. And then you, they add to that, and this is a very strong argument. And I agree with this argument. Not only that, look at those who believe in this since the Pentecostal movement of a hundred years ago and the Charismatics. And there's so much stupid doctrine, error, craziness that has flown out of that segment of the church. And I know. I lived in it and I witnessed a whole lot of this. But on the other hand, there have been 
many people over the centuries, whatever they called it was irrelevant, but over the centuries and today who acted in obedience to subjective impressions as Christians, leadings of the Holy Spirit. And the result was effective evangelism, extraordinary grace or comfort through them given to a brother or a sister, God's children. Why? Because God cares about an obscure Ethiopian eunuch before he goes back to Africa. God cares about Paul. And so on his long journey back, finally again to Jerusalem, in every town where the believers are gathered, he goes there, and God impresses upon them to say things to Paul in order to constantly tell Paul, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. And when you get there, don't be shocked. This will happen. And he was building Paul up to endure. Because he loved him. God cares about a new Christian who is tormented with guilt and flashbacks from a bad acid trip. And so he puts it into the heart of some obscure other Christian to say words to that young new Christian. No more flashbacks for you. So that that 20-year-old kid collapses in his chair. Just sensing in a way he never knew he could. And he needed at that time. Like babies need someone to change their diapers at a particular age. Overwhelmed by the love of the Father. That's why I am adamant about the power of Scripture, about the inerrancy and the infallibility and the sufficiency of Scripture for all of life. That's what makes me unyielding as an expository preacher and teacher. And of the importance of reading your Bible and saturating yourself with the Word of God. Doctrinal truth about salvation is found in the Bible, not in personal impressions. Doctrinal truth about how to live 
of what the church is, about how one is saved, about what justification is, about whether there's a heaven and a hell and a resurrection, about what is right and what is wrong and what is moral, what is immoral, about our sexual lives and how to conduct ourselves. It is all found in the Scripture. Period. But that is a different category than God's leading and guiding subjectively like he did with Philip and with millions and millions of others throughout the centuries. This kind of guiding of the Holy Spirit in no way compromises the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. All the authoritative truth we need for salvation, for life, is written in the Scripture. But that does not mean that God cannot speak words of personal application of truth to one's heart powerfully. Sally, No, 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 that's nothing. Turn TV on louder. No, Sally, you are unforgiving. God speaks. Sally, you are unforgiving. That person, you need to repent. Or... Maybe she needs a little extra help. And see, he goes to Mary. Mary, I need you to go pray with Sally. And I need you to say to her, the Lord keeps telling me, Sally, you need to repent over something. He may do that, particularly if we know it and we're open to it. See, in one sense, it's pretty simple. The Scripture tells us who God is, what sin is, what the Gospel is, how a person can be saved by Jesus, and how those persons who are saved by Jesus are to conduct their lives in this world. It's all clearly written in the Bible. It is absolutely sufficient. But the Bible does not tell you that there is a man in a chariot on a desert road. The Bible does not rule out special guidance of the Holy Spirit. It advocates it. The Bible does not take the place of the Holy Spirit's indwelling and personal subjective guidance, the Bible's not meant to take the place of that. And the Holy Spirit's giftings, special guidance, leadings or impressions never take the place of the Bible. So let me just close and say, what's the take-home then? Let's get serious 
day by day in our personal lives, to hear what we ought to be hearing in our prayer life. First and foremost, and always saturate yourselves with the written Word of God. And don't settle for it to just inform your mind, but with informing mind, oh God, let the Word get into my heart and my affections. And then with it, yearn more to be sensitive to His indwelling, His impressions, His moving, that you, yes, little OU, might even be used by the Spirit to bring breakthroughs, joy, happiness, help, comfort, rebuke to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Son whom You have given. You did not withhold Him. You have sent Him. And as Isaiah, Your prophet, foretold, He suffered and died bearing our guilt, our sin, our transgressions. And You raised Him from the dead to sit at Your right hand. And Lord Jesus is King, sitting on David's throne forever. We thank you that you have set the Holy Spirit of God into our hearts, crying, Abba, Daddy, precisely because those words come from the Holy Spirit. Oh, may we love your word be saturated with the Scripture more and more and love to pray it and to commune with you more and more in the weeks and months to come. And may we see fruit in our lives and fruit of service and ministry to others in our lives and community to the glory of your holy name. Amen.